Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. We're recording this podcast on July 5th, and Dominique, that's a, a celebratory time for me because July 4th marks the 10th anniversary of our moving the horses to the Clicker Center barn. So that is truly Independence Day. But that is, so so at some point, at some point we should have a a podcast episode on on what it's like to, to board horses and some of the things, some of the ins and outs of that versus having horses at home. But that's not that's not why we're recording today. Today we are also recording our 150th Equiosity podcast episode. Yay! Yay! <laughs> yes. And that voice, voice is Dr. <laughs> Susan Friedman, who is joining us because I can think of no better way to celebrate that huge milestone than to have an afternoon's conversation with Susan. So Susan, welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome. Thank you both and congratulations. 150 is a lot of talking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of disseminating and a lot of answering and also asking great questions. So congratulations. I remember when you started, I thought, hmm, this should be interesting. And here we are, 150 podcasts later, later. celebrating together. Yes, yes, together, which is a lovely thing. So you are going to turn the tables on us, I believe. And since we've been spending 150 uh, episodes interviewing other people or when it's just Dominique and myself just chatting between the two of us instead of are asking you the questions very scary you're going to ask <laughs> us questions which is definitely very scary it is but scary we'll, we'll, see, we'll see how it goes <laughs> not only is there no preparation but susan is asking the questions oh my god <laughs> that's right it's uh actually my favorite way to work i want to change the con- the contingency right now <laughs> starting to feel anxiety <laughs> Yes, and we understand that anxiety from Joe Lang's wonderful uh, dissemination of his and Gold Diamond's work. Anxiety describes a contingency where you feel there's a threat and you're kind of waiting for that shoe to drop. So let's just drop the shoe. That's there. It's done. (laughs) And you can (laughs) release that anxiety because really it's just about sharing our brains together our recall, our memories, our thoughts about how you got here, 150. So let me just start by asking, what were your original goals for Equosity? We wanted to do a project together, Alex and I. And um, I think at the time I was, there were big changes in my life. I was going to, I had just separated and I knew at some point I would leave the the Cavalia farm. Um, 
So video was not going to be something easy to do, but talking, <laughs> audio seemed like a, like a very um, feasible possibility. So, and I remember at the time I was, um, it was, it was new to me, the podcast, and I was listening to a few podcasts that I really enjoyed, nothing that had to do with animal training, but I thought, why not do it on this topic? And Alex was enthusiastic about it, and we just dived in, and it's an easy thing to do. You know, it's just recording. Easy, yeah, but it takes <laughs> some courage too, doesn't it, to put yourself out there. It's it's easy once you know how to put it together, but... The, the figuring out, I mean, first of all, podcast, what's a podcast? Because, you know, this was, this was a while ago that we started. Yeah. And podcasts were still fairly new. And it's yeah. such a weird wor word. So it's like, what are you talking about, Dominique? What's a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> but I think for me, it was really ever since I met Dominique and we started sharing our, our passion for horses and our passion for training. I've wanted to turn Dominique loose on the horse world because Dominique, you are, I think, one of the most articulate from the heart spokesperson for horses. And you are always there for the horse. And you're, uh, you've seen so much. You've seen so much good training. You've seen some bad training. And you've been able to travel the world because of uh, through Kabaya. And so you have seen, you've seen a lot. And you, you were new to the horse world when Kabaya started. And you had quite the education in what horse training was about. And you were, you are so articulate in the way you talk about compassionate training. And the horse world needs that. We need voices that yeah. speak for the horse. At the same time, I've observed the same thing about Dominique. So I hear here that description of uh, articulate and deeply authentic um, expressions of your ideas and your hopes. But I also uh, think about Dominique as someone who understands that there needs to be a certain level of restraint and patience to celebrate approximations. And I think of you with that, you know, I remember conversations where you said, well, you know, it's not where I'd like it to be, but it's improved. And that ability to celebrate approximations, uh, a steady upward march to the goal is really required because what we're doing is changing an entire cultural viewpoint, a world view about how behavior works. And that's not something that's gonna be either you do it right or you're wrong. It's gonna be, well, you moved a little and mm -hmm. I'm gonna celebrate that. So I think about that with you as well, Dominique. Is that, does that sound familiar to you, that strategy? It does. It does. And it's encouraging because you don't have to get to the end goal to celebrate and feel that you are making progress. Yeah. Thanks, Alex, for that uh, very nice way of describing me, I guess. You're very welcome. I have to say that um, I remember when we started, it was fun. You know, do you remember when we picked the music? 
Yes, we were sitting around. It was fun. We were sitting at your uh, my dining table. Your dining table, and uh, so we could look out at the horses. And we were we wanted something that a piece of music that was uh, joyful, yeah, happy, yeah, and yeah, that was that was. And I remember the first, the very first podcast we we recorded. I was kind of nervous a little bit, but at the same time, it was exciting and it. It's it's been fun for 150 episodes. I mean, you know, we everything that when we picked the little logo, it's been a pleasure to work with you. It's been very um, all the time. It's been like um, a joyful ride throughout. Isn't that great? And we've met some some fascinating, really fun people, and had some great conversations that stretched on for hours. You know, we don't. So when we're when we're recording these, we don't look at the clock. We just we just go till we feel complete, which is the way to do it. Yeah, it's and, wonderful. And you know, the other piece that I think is also important with Dominique is there are lots of people who who love horses and are very sentimental about horses, but they're not. They don't have the grounding in the learning theory, in the science that Dominique that you have, and and that. I really think keeps things really powerfully anchored. And it's a good place from which to speak in terms of we're, we're not just saying don't hit the nice horsey because, you know, we, we want to feed the horse carrots. It's there, there are good reasons for choosing positive reinforcement over punishment, just in terms of, you could say, even the efficiency of the training. That's right. And of course, to, to have Alexandra Curlin as a co-host with 20 more years of practicing this, understanding this, pushing the limits of this. I mean, it's a dream come true. I mean, I, and I think for, the, for our listeners to have access to you every week like this has a lot of value. Yeah, it's a dream come true for all the listeners. Absolutely. Alex, I, I think so much of what you do comes from that latent database, that lifelong convergence of um, peaceful, a value for peace, peaceful uh, interaction, um, not only with our horses, but with one another, uh, for being a really deep listener when other people talk and considering what they've said especially if it, dis- it isn't exactly in accord with where you were going um, and fostering other people's voices. What, what was, were your goals at the beginning of the podcast? I have to think for a moment what the goals were. Um, I don't know that I had goals that were specifically spelled out because that's really not, that's not, generally how I operate. So I don't generally have a, I'm headed in to this endpoint, or I, I want to get this accomplished. I'm much more flow with what appears, which is really, I think, key to good training. Your learner presents you with, you have a general sense of where you want to go. We had a general direction that we wanted to head in, we wanted to share our passion for positive reinforcement training. 
we wanted to share our passion and our love for horses and that idea that the horses are co-equals with us in the training. But I didn't have a specific goal of we want to cover these topics or talk to these people. It was more, let's just flow with it. Yeah, yeah, that, that fits how I watch you manage all of this dissemination and idea generation and refinement. I've often thought that there are people who have a very clear goal and they know what they want to be when they grow up and everything they do in their lifetime is to meet that dream. I'm going to be a pediatrician or a brain surgeon or something. And then there are people who their skill is standing by um, the riverbank and watching what flows and they know when to go in and grab and, and then run with that. And then they go back to the bank and they watch things pass by. And then they're like, ooh, that. And then they go in and grab. So you're, you're more like the uh, riverbank optimizing what the current brings past you. Yeah, yeah. I, I would never have been able, you know, way back when, I would never have said as one of my goals, well, I'm going to do a podcast with Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. You know, that, that, I would never have imagined that, and yet here we are doing it. I would never have imagined that uh, we would be having this conversation with you, and yet here we are doing it. And so, well, you know, I remember, Alex, when, when, um, when we first started this, because it was really, really new, the podcast, and I remember reading um, statistics that most people who started a podcast didn't do more than six episodes. Wow. And so at the time, we really didn't know. Um, and so here we are at the 150th. And I'm sorry, I caught you there and you were going somewhere I wanted to hear. <laughs> but it was so, we had no idea in the beginning. You know, we certainly didn't say, well, we'll do 150. And and it has happened during the, the time where we've said, well, if ever one day we feel like we've done, we're not enjoying this anymore, we'll just say, well, this is our last episode. <laughs> you know, it's as simple as that. We don't, but we're still enjoying it. So I don't see that day right now <laughs> coming, Good. but... Yeah. So we were talking about the flow, that that's how you, you well, operate more. Yeah, that I think if I were going by what I could imagine, I would be living a much more, um, I don't want to say impoverished, but uh, it, it, not nearly as interesting an experience as I'm living because <laughs> I... I allowed things to unfold. Yeah. And that that it's sort of the expression of don't take score too soon. You know, that it may look like you're, I don't know, you're in an absolute mess right now, but uh, don't take score too soon. This may actually turn out to be a good thing. So, for example, here's a quick example. I just had to have some very major work done on the house. Very long story. I won't go into it right now, but it involved bulldozers. Oh, no. <laughs> and and so from the road, across the, the front of my uh, front garden lawn, around the side of the house, into the back, and the good part of the back, it's all bulldozed, horrible 
you know, it's just bare, bare ground. And we've been having torrential rains. So you can imagine that it's muddy bare ground because we're on clay. And, and I could be just going, oh, this is terrible. Poor me, poor me. Isn't this awful? Except that I've been looking at the work of people like Dr. Doug Tallamy, who's talking about creating homegrown national parks, you know, your own, your own homegrown national park and your own property where you plant more native species, which encourages uh, more biodiversity so that you get the insects coming back that the birds need to feed their young, et cetera, et cetera. And I've been wanting to do this. You know, I've really been wanting to change my garden into more of that native plant, homegrown national park, Dr. Doug Tallamy kind of approach. But I had an established garden. Well, I don't have an established garden anymore. I have a bulldozed property. Yeah. And so I have a blank slate. What a dream. Yeah. God, it's, it's so dis- it's, deeply disruptive. <laughs> yeah. It's So it's don't take score too soon. Yeah. It's okay. I wanted to do this. The universe, however you want to put it, has provided me now with a blank slate. Perhaps not quite in the way that I would have liked, but but there it is. And I'll end up down the road having more of what I want because I went through this horror um, than if I had been trying to do it around the backbone of undisturbed plantings. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that life and training is a lot like that. You know, you, you, get, you can be in a situation with an animal where you think, oh, you know, like your, your horse has gone lame. And that's tragic. You know, your horse is lame. And maybe it's a, it's a really tough diagnosis where it looks like you might not be able to ride. But you want to do something with your horse. So you learn about concept training. And while your horse is on stall rest, you are exploring uh, what, it, what concept training is and what it means to teach it. And you're doing all kinds of really interesting husbandry training. And by the time your horse is recovered from whatever the injury is, you've got some really cool training under your belt that you would not have had on the radar. So ever since Susan was on the podcast, there's another way to say don't take scores too soon. It's find the Easter egg. (laughs) Yes. That's right. Yeah, yeah, you and I one, share, we share that. Oh, that one is really stuck. Find <laughs> the Easter egg. <laughs> yeah, we share that sort of uh, realistic optimism. It's not just wild optimism in the face of unspeakable woe. It's acknowledgement of the woe and then this, this skill to rake through those leaves and say, what's what's good about this? How can I use this? how can this bring me something I didn't have before? And um, that's what people call in psychology resilience. You know, you, you find that thing and it pulls you out from the depth. And uh, it would be really great to be able to help people build that skill. So in psych- so how do people learn to have that skill? So you're, you're the psychologist. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and it's funny because 
Um, I'm, I'm the parent. And that's where I was able to most clearly explore what I believed I knew about how behavior works. So, you know, you wait for that moment of unspeakable woe. I remember the first time um, Marnie, the older daughter, fell, and that was her very first scrape on her knee. Yeah. So this perfect little body, and now there's this first scrape on the knee. And um, I remember saying to her, uh, you know, first acknowledging the woe, you know, that hurts and things make you fall. And sometimes your eyes and your feet don't talk. And so, you know, getting into the woe of it, let me hold you, poor, poor Marnie. And then saying, but wow, you know, look at what you've done, what courage you, and you figured out how to put on your own antibiotic cream and you, <laughs> you, pick, you got to pick a Band-Aid. Oh my gosh, what a great day. Let's show everybody in the neighborhood the Band-Aid that you picked. So, I mean, I think that one way is by seeing the opportunities, which is, of course, a hallmark of great training is observing opportunity and then shaping, knowing what you want, and then you know, shaping. And maybe not, I heard you, you know, maybe not knowing what you want in some big written plan and goal, but we know we want resilient people that they will live happier lives with a skill set that allows them to come forward again. So that was sort of the meta understanding. And then I just selected for those small approximations in every single opportunity. Yeah. So I think it, it is a set of skills and then you generalize across all the different conditions. Yeah. And now I have an adult kid who works unbelievably unhealthy hours a week as a lawyer. And she says, yeah, but the good thing is that what I learned, you know, about this case and then she, she just riffs on what's good about it. And then here I am trying to reverse, pull her back under the leaves to say, can we not hang in the woe for a little bit longer? <laughs> like get you a good night's sleep maybe. So yeah, it's, it's, it is something I think that can be taught and can uh, be learned. But I also think that people have a tendency to be that way. Would you say you were that way your whole life? Um, I don't know. But I've certainly learned to be that way through a series of life happens experiences. You know, so, uh, so I don't know why, you know, what it was, why I would learn, go look for the Easter eggs and succeed with that. And someone else would be in a similar situation, sort of, you know, you've fallen down, you skinned your knee and... And it's and there isn't the Easter egg finding. There's just the oh poor me, I skinned my my knee. Yeah, I'm out of commission. How about you, Dominique? How would you characterize yourself on the resilient scale? Yeah, I think I had I think I had a tendency to be this way, but I really love to be a very um, to have that awareness and to voluntarily cultivate this. So this, that episode, it really resonated with me. Um, and, you know, we were in the middle of the pandemic and everyone was saying how terrible it was. And I didn't actually feel it was that, you know, I, I was aware, of course, of all, you know, my father died during the pandemic and he was my favorite person in the world. So uh, it's not to say that there was no sadness, 
But, you know, I could find Easter eggs during that pandemic, lots of them actually. And so I, you know, but, but I think to be, to be um, deliberate about it is the word I was looking for. Yes. Um, it, yeah. It's, it's making me think of uh, a couple of years back, I, was, I flew into the UK and the plane got in just as several other planes got in and the line through customs was very long. And you know how they sometimes, you, we've all flown internationally, how you have those long corridors that, and the lines back up through these long airless corridors. So it's very hot. It's very stuffy. There are people just packed in like sardines. And directly in front of me was a family, uh, parents and, let's see, three children boy, teenage, probably a, like a 12 or 13 year old, and then a, a younger daughter, maybe nine, 10, somewhere in there. And the boy was probably seven or eight. And the girls were, oh, I have a headache. And oh, it's so hot. And we're hungry. And the parents were, oh, we're going to miss our ride. And this is terrible. And and they were just reinforcing the girls going, oh, I can't cope and I have a headache and this is terrible. And, and, the, and the parents were, you know, we're going to miss our ride and we're now so helpless and hopeless. And this, you know, it's like there, there will be other rides. And, and I thought, you are modeling for your children their future and their future inability to cope. And they could so easily have modeled coping. Yeah. Which is what you're talking about. Yeah, and my my prediction, my guess is that those are people whose understanding is that your ability to cope or not is inside you, you're born with it, it's a thing, right? We call that a reified construct, treating the idea of resilience or coping as a thing instead of a concept. And um, if you think about it as something inside that you have, then you're just left with the cards you were dealt like your eye color and yeah. uh, you suffer more. Yeah. But when um, the focus is on, yeah, your power to make what you will of a situation and find those yeah. Easter eggs, then you start to build those skills. I observe those kinds of interactions between parents and kids all the time. And uh, my children have hilarious stories of how they would try and pull me away in aisle seven as I was following a parent. You know? <laughs> and I would say, I just want to tell her one thing. I think the parent, if I just told her this one thing, I think it would just transform this whole tantrum situation. No, mom, don't do it. You don't know her. <laughs> you know? Really funny to reflect on. Yeah. So how about Dominique? When were you about to say something there? Yeah, because you know, there's there was another um uh and, and you may not know that we did this, but we did something on your presentation that you did at Clicker Expo 2019 on emotions. Cause I really, really enjoyed that presentation. Good. Um, and so we did a couple of episodes on this on this uh topic. And for me, what I really 
And, you know, we talk about resilience, but what I really enjoyed there was that uh, instead of, you know, just accepting, disrupting dis uh, emotions as, you know, something that are naturally occurring, it's inside you, there's not much you can do about it. Maybe if you meditate, Right. You know, if you look inside, because the ultimate, of course, is to know that happiness comes from within, right? right? I mean, you hear this all the time. If you live in LA, I mean, you bathe in it, right? right. Um, and so, and, and you know, I've, I've read so many books that went that direction, you know, try to find the happiness within, you know, that's where it starts. And so when I heard that presentation you did, um, and instead of, you know, thinking, why is it that I cannot find it inside me to think of it as more of a contingency analysis, That's I right. thought that was pretty refreshing and powerful for me and I could do something about it. And if something, if an emotion comes up and it feels like uncomfortable, well, look at the contingency. Absolutely. I think that is really uh, very empowering. And it is different than our cultural uh, view of, you know, you're the only one who can change yourself. And you can't change anybody but you and everybody else for themselves. And it, but we're each other's environment. So I am your antecedent and consequences whenever we interact your mind. And I think that if we extend our knowledge of how behavior works to relationships in that way, then we can ask ourselves, what was reinforcing for the parents Alex described at the airport in the customs line? We know what's reinforcing for the children. That's really apparent. Um, why would someone who's reasonable, rational, kind human being behave in this way? What's the reinforcer? And that can open many, many layers of understanding and freedom to not be hurt. You know, the initial zing of criticism um, that seems unfair or unfounded. And I'll ask myself, what would the reinforcer be for the person saying that in their presentation about my work? And then it, it allows me to uh, hypothesize what some of the reinforcers might be and have more understanding for how they got to that place. So there are many variations of how that basic understanding that the environment is always influencing all aspects of our uh, being alive, including emotions and emotional behavior. Yeah, and, and for me also, what was interesting was that because, you know, it's been over 10 years that I've been hearing that we behave for effect and all this, but emotions were kind of this thing apart because it was private and we couldn't really get to it. But that presentation, you know, that I, I could see how I can, how I could touch the emotion, how I could influence the emotion with the contingency. And that for me was something new. Yeah, that's you know, great. It, it, it was no longer this private out of our um out of the oh, realm of our science yes it, and not accessible to us we knew it was there we acknowledge it was there but we couldn't do much about it because we couldn't measure it we couldn't and we we didn't know how to talk about it and all of a sudden they the emotions became descriptors of the contingencies 
and yeah. and we we were able to talk about them and in my life it was very empowering yeah we were able to do something about it yes which doesn't mean i don't think meditation is a good thing but i like to have you know i like to think that it's not just about sitting down and looking at the disruptive emotion that i can really change something in the environment and that will you know and i will feel differently that's right and i have to really give a a deep appreciation moment for joe lang um, who brings us, you know, a really well-taught gold diamond points of view uh, from the 70s and the 80s, even earlier, you know, Skinner talked about emotions as Joe reminds us. Um, but yeah, picking it up and really turning it into a behavior analysis of contingencies, which is our jam. That's what we do. Um, is really helpful. So there were a lot of Easter eggs for me about mining that work of Joe's and Gold Diamonds and others, and trying to put it together in a way that would reflect on the cultural fog about emotions. Um, you know, we're all, we have an angry circuit, and when it gets triggered, we all behave the same way. Mm. Just that idea that we can um, cry in anger, laugh in anger, stamp our feet in anger, slam doors in anger, zip, complete silence, stone silence in anger. Um, yeah, very, very, very useful. So a big shout out to the shoulders on which we stand, which we we all enjoy doing. Yeah. I hope, I hope you continue to talk about that in future years, emotions. Yes, I and I have um, continued to present it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, at the TAG... Uh, convergence seminar, which is a or conference, which is an interesting conference that combines trainers, animal trainers, and human teachers together to share what they know and to influence one another's understanding and work. Um, just presented it there, and yeah, and I I continue to present it and refine it, learn more and more, yeah, as we go. The Easter egg for that for me was learning more about color, that likewise color like emotions is not a thing that's inherent in an object. It is interpreted by your brain. And what we share when we both say lavender is a verbal, verbal community, but I don't know what you see. And that's a great launching point to understand that I don't know what you feel when you say grief, um, but I know, you know, that it's in the class of feelings that hurt. So yeah, we can go from there. What are you thinking, Alex? I see the wheels are turning behind well, those I'm, eyes. I'm thinking, I'm thinking also about labels. Mm -hmm. So you know, we talk about fearful horses, aggressive horses. Well, a horse, Maybe fearful under certain conditions, but he's not fearful all the time. That's right. And I, I think that is something that that is really an important understanding that this discussion of emotions brings, because we do use those labels a lot. You know, we talk about the anxious horse, the shy horse, the the stubborn horse, all of the aggressive labels. dog, the dominating dog. Yeah. Right. And right. Uh, and when we start recognizing that 
that is not that individual. It's not in that individual. It is a function of the contingencies. This horse is fearful on the 4th of July. Actually, the horses are really good about fireworks. Mm. That's an interesting thing. Why are dogs so much more afraid of fireworks than horses? But So we'll talk about the fearful dog on the 4th of July. <laughs> but it's on the 4th of July when the firecrackers are going off. It's not 24-7. That's right. Behavior is conditional. So what have you found? I mean, that's such a simple, bright light to guide how we move through the earth. And yet it's really a very difficult um, fact of nature for people to pick up. You know, I, I, we all have put it down in so many different ways through so many different presentations and hangers. We've, we've hung it on so many different hangers and so many different closets. And yet every day I meet someone or I see on Facebook or on a list or someone else's presentation or a podcast where they just cannot pick that up and make it useful for them. You know, I just heard yesterday from someone who has, um, uh, how do you say it in English, uh, German Shepherd. You know, German Shepherds are um, impressive dogs. And he was just saying, and he has a great dog. I mean, the dog is wonderful has certain issues but you know generally he's a he's a great dog to be around and he was telling me you know for this dog in order to get a good dog there had to be some discipline for this dog you know right (laughs) if I wanted to have a well-behaved dog in this case I had to do this because it was something inside this dog that required different techniques than for dogs in general and, and this, this person is, is, is not a dog trainer. I mean, he's just a, a pers- an experienced dog owner and has a good dog. And he felt that if he hadn't done this, his dog would not have been a well-behaved dog. And, he, it, and I know, you know, I'm sure it was not, well, I don't know when the corrections were there, but I wasn't there because now this dog is nine years old. So, but for sure, I know there must have been a few uh, firm corrections. And, you know, for this person, the justification is, is that the, the dog is, you know, he's, he seems to be a pretty happy dog. So all is good, you know. And obviously, this dog does have a lot of resilience. But what kind, you know, how would he be if he had had uh, you, Susan, as a mother or you, Alex, as an owner, rather? I think he would have been a great dog. Yeah. 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 And of course, we know that it the person was reinforced by the compliance they were looking for. And so it's understandable why they say those things, because it worked and we can't set up a time machine to go back, mm. do it another way, show him that it would have worked another way and then compare the outcomes nuanced perhaps um, differences in outcomes but that would kind of be the ultimate uh, Mm. the ultimate twilight zone story would be to have a trainer's tale where we get to go back and do it again with the same animal and uh, take a look at how different that would be I also wonder how different that owner would be 
if the owner picked up the challenge of saying, I could do uh, the punishment approach that I am most familiar with, most comfortable with, was done to me, that I've done to other dogs, my models have done it that way, or I could take the challenge and see if I can't get someone to help me do it in a way that doesn't require those harsh corrections. I think that the owner would be a very different person too. I think that's the really powerful point in all of this. It's not just how different our clicker trained horses are, our clicker trained dogs are, but how different we are because we are using positive reinforcement and we are finding the alternatives to that easy answer of just go get a bigger stick. Mm-hmm. You know, do what do what's been modeled in this culture for you know, hundreds of years. Uh, use go down the punishment road, go down the intimidating road. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we we are different because we have made those choices to choose positive reinforcement. That's the power. You know, and I think about makes me think of of Anne Edie with Panda. And so most people know that Panda's the miniature horse that I trained to be Anne's guide, and Anne is blind. And before she had Panda, she had guide dogs. And the guide dogs were trained with corrections. And the, I, I saw the, uh, the introduction that Anne went through uh, when she got her second guide dog. And the first thing the trainers asked Anne was they said, show me your correction. And they, they needed to see that she could really take the lead and give the dog a really sharp, that was wrong correction on the lead. And, the, and Anne at that time believed that she had to do what the trainers told her to do or she would ruin the dog. Well, you have to, if you are going to use punishment, you do. Yeah, and well, and, and you're, you know, you're being given this highly trained animal. And so, it, of course, you're going to follow the instructions of the trainers. And the trainers are going to tell you that if you don't correct this dog and correct him hard, you will ruin him. And Anne used, described how she always had to be the policeman for this dog. She was always looking out for things that had to be corrected, had to be stopped, and that the relationship was that of being a policeman. And I could see it in her body. You know, you look at, I looked at a photo or video of Anne with this dog, the tension in her shoulders, the tension throughout her body, because both of the way the dog pulled and then also having to be always on the lookout for what can I stop. And then Panda, (laughs) I said to Anne, if you, you know, because she had that habit pattern built into her, I said, if you ever jerk on this lead. (laughs) So I, 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 as as I said to Anne, I'm not Panda's trainer. I am Panda's nanny. Because trainers disappear, they go away, but nannies are with you for life. They're family. Yeah, they are forever. You are never completely free. Uh, so 
you know, I said to her, you know, if you ever do that to Panda, I will snatch her away, which is not the most positive reinforcement way of saying it. But um, well, it's, you know, it, with, would that be negative reinforcement or, or <laughs> negative punishment? When, when Anne worked with Panda, the, her shoulders were soft. Everything about her was lighter and softer. You could just see it in the expression of her body. You didn't have to, you didn't have to listen to her talk about training, which was always so articulate in terms of this difference between being on guard and having to correct versus with Panda, you're just on, always on the lookout of what can I say yes to. So it does make a difference. Yeah. It makes a profound difference. Yeah. How did you meet you and Panda and Anne to do that work? Um, Anne was uh, was one of my riding clients, so she we started first with riding lessons. So she came to me to basically she had ridden as a teenager, and was starting again now that her children were getting a little bit older. So she came to the barn where I was boarding my horses, and she uh, started to ride my my school horse Magnet, who's this just incredible incredible Arab. And they were such a good match that I ended up giving Magnet to Anne. Wow. Because they were just, they were such a great, great match. And he was just, he was, he was a one in 10 million horse. Just <laughs> a super, super horse. Yeah. So. Peach. So I have a questions for you guys. Because I'm, you know, Kenel, my dog, she's now 11 years old. And I don't know if I will ever get another dog at this point, but probably I will, you know, even though I say no for now, but probably I will. And so I'm starting to think about what would I do differently with a new dog? And one of the things that I love about everything I have learned over the past 10, 15 years is that I understand my mistakes better. You know, it's, it's because when you don't know much, you say, well, I tried everything. It didn't work. This method mm -hmm. doesn't work. And now we know that it's not that the principles are wrong. It's not that the method doesn't work. It's because I'm not applying it correctly. I'm yeah. making mistakes. I'm not understanding different nuances. And as we go, we understand more and more and we get more fine. We get all the fine tune. And then, and then we get, Susan and Jesus and, you know, they just shake the box again and we think, oh, right, that's why that wasn't working optimally, optim, uh, optimally, in yes. an optimal way. So what would you do differently if you had a new animal compared to what you've done in the past? Are there things you would change? Things you would look at differently, strategies you would not use anymore and would rather use something else. I know you want me to keep going. Spending time with Susan is always such a treat. Of course you don't want me to stop at this point. But Dominique and I were really very greedy. We really did talk away the afternoon. So if I posted all of this podcast in one go, you would look at it and think, that's way too long. I don't have time for that now. I'll listen to it later. And then we all know how that goes. Later just get keeps getting later and later. 
and pretty soon you're on to other things and you've missed all the gems from Susan. So I'm going to divide this conversation up and we can celebrate over the span of several weeks reaching the milestone of our 150th podcast episode. Before I go, I want to thank all of you for listening and for all the wonderful comments that we get about the podcast. This podcast has been, just for me, a wonderful excuse to get together with Dominique. I know we would have been connecting periodically to talk about training, even if we hadn't had a podcast, but it has certainly made it more fun sharing our conversations with all of you. So thank you again, and next time we'll hear what the answer is to Dominique's question. What would we do differently if we got a new animal?